This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. In this episode, I speak with Ian White, Director of Platform Engineering at DAT. Ian recently joined DAT to scale their Kubernetes-based cloud infrastructure, which has come under stress as their business has grown over the past couple of years. Ian shares how he's partnered with developers to learn about their challenges, how he conveyed a vision for where the company needed to go, and how he's been working with teams and business stakeholders to successfully drive change. Leading this kind of change is challenging, but Ian is approaching it in a thoughtful way that I find really inspiring. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ian, thanks for coming on the show today. Really excited to chat with you. Likewise, thanks for having me. So I understand you started at DAT around four months ago with this problem statement of how do we scale infrastructure as demand scales? Can you share a little bit more about the context and the challenges the company has been facing, the context for bringing you in and the problem you're trying to solve? Absolutely. So DAT is a, we connect truckers, carriers, and brokers. We're the largest load board in America. And we've been in business for over 44 years. In the technology space, it's really been an a, uh, I think at DAT started off as a, like a fax and phone based, you know, kind of company and, and transitioned into a platform based company a number of years ago. And through that transition, you know, on the, especially on the cloud side, we've seen that our platforms have really been focused on building out self service platform modules, right? That enable that consumption of like compute and storage and like raw infrastructure. And that's really good. It actually was a key component to maturing our products, our platforms, our services, both internally and externally, which is great. But the challenge that we ran into and the DAT ran into is that the demand in those areas outpaced all of the available resources, the team structure, and the capabilities. So really, it's just a challenge of scale. That's sort of where I came into the picture, is that many of these self-service platforms had been built, but they were challenged with scale. And so where I've kind of come into play is trying to help them evolve and accelerate our delivery processes so that we can reduce the cognitive load that we have on developers today and remove some of those bottlenecks, frankly, so that developers can really deliver reliable, high-quality products faster. That makes sense. Well, you mentioned the self-service platforms were kind of you know, teams are struggling with them and organizational structures maybe were also needing to be rethought of like when you came in or maybe your predecessors, like how were people trying to solve this problem before you got started? Yeah. So our platform is a kind of GitOps based Kubernetes infrastructure, which running on EKS. And that was good in the sense that it really did a lot of rugged individualism. You could rapidly create infrastructure, get your environments online, which was good. I think the challenge that my predecessors ran into is that that was awesome to have as a kind of early startup. As you start to mature, you start to see a lot of patterns that everyone's sort of solving the same problems differently. I call it undifferentiated problems, right? And we saw that play out many times. Why was this product down for X hours? Oh, we ran into the same thing that another team hit you know, downstream a while ago, but we didn't have the mechanism to do it or we weren't aware of it. Or, hey, how come it's taken so long to get a new environment, a new feature online? Well, we've got to rebuild this from scratch. We're building our own you know, DevOps pipelines and CICD pipelines. But, well, there's 20 other teams that have that, right? So that, although there is a good community around like knowledge sharing and enablement across the company, it was just one of the challenges, I think, of a, of a decent, fully decentralized platform model that's fully kind of only self-service, right? 
So I think that was one of them. I think the other challenge is that, that, I mean, if you look at the pandemic, the pandemic had a massive impact on our industry. We saw 40, 50, 60% increase in our usage and volume. That's across transactions. That's across the amount of loads happening through the pandemic. And so a lot of our systems had never been pushed to that degree before. And so it did unearth some fragility in some of our architectures and some of our, our frameworks. And so that's also, I think, a response to, okay, cool. We learned a lot right, through that. How do we really make a search so sure that we're ready for the next kind of challenge like that? So you come in and you mentioned to me you spent the first couple months just doing interviews, workshops, baselining measurements. So I'd love to dive into all of this further. For starters, what do you mean by customer interviews? What did you do when you got during the company? Yeah, I mean, it was a literal customer interview in that we sat across the table with, I think it was uh, probably 10 different application teams, maybe a little more than that. We've got about 30 all in. So it was a little more than half. And I would ask some questions about their experience with their infrastructure, where they've seen fragility in their environments, what's their wish list of things that they would love to have, what are the things that they hate <laughs> about the platform today, and then what are the things that they are not ready for yet, but they'd like to see in the future, right? And that was a super candid conversation. A lot of things came out of that. One of the things, I think the three themes that came out of it was Hey, we want really good quality testing across our environment, especially around like the platform and the app loads. Two, they really wanted to make sure that we're getting single pane of glass observability around the platform, right? Which historically we do have, you know, modern observability, but it's not necessarily in a single pane of glass, I would say. And then three, I think they really wanted to make sure that there is proactive alerting around incidents. And as we compile a lot of data for like logs and things like that today, but how we're using logs, metrics, traces to get more proactive and automate the responses to incidents and have more self-healing infrastructure. But it was a literal conversation. You know, I think before we got to the conversation, one of the things that I did was I wrote a North Star vision statement. It was a probably a 24 pages deck or so, but the meat and potatoes was in the first seven. And I shared that out to the organization, right? And I said, hey, this is what I've observed in the last 30 days, right? What I've seen already, I want to get two clicks down. So I'm going to be meeting with you to kind of share, to interview and, and understand if these assumptions are valid. And I think that was a really uh, good alignment around, like, I wasn't coming into the conversation, just kind of asking you know, questions in the dark. We were generally aligned on, like, the things that I've seen, the pain points I was observing, and, you know, some of that had already been compiled through, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations, but it was good to now get into a team context, right? And hear from the whole dynamic of the DevOps teams um, kind of talking through the concerns. So I think that was the meat and potatoes of the actual interviews, which was fun. That makes sense. Well, you mentioned some of the needs expressed from the teams, or at least some that arose from the interviews. I'm curious to dive a little bit deeper into the types of the pain points or the things you were observing, right, happening with teams. Are there problems? Clearly, it sounds like there were some resiliency problems. You've mentioned security, release management. Can you kind of describe what the status quo looked like when just from your eyes as you looked across yeah. how teams were managing, self-managing? Yep, absolutely. Um, so like the benefit of the platform was that you've got self-service, right? So it's very flexible. It's very extensible. It's pretty reliable if you set it up correctly. 
the challenge of weaknesses in that environment that I was seeing with dev teams was inconsistency, inconsistency of deployment processes, test processes, release processes, a lot of inconsistency in terms of observability, right? Both from a, you know, what we should measure as well as how we should measure it and then what we should do with those measurements. There was inconsistency in terms of practices and processes, especially as it comes to incident management and reliability and scalability. Each team was sort of approaching these problems with their own domain knowledge, right? And with their own, you know, contextual background history with it. So sort of your, I would say your experience would be highly dependent on your more senior developer and your least senior developer, right, on the team. We also saw that just the operating model that we had for cloud was not really scalable to the needs. There was, it's, there was some restrictions in terms of workflows and a lot of hoops to jump through, too many workflows to jump through to ship, you know, software. I think at one point I counted 15 or so different steps, right? There's just too many different steps in the process. I think this has led to a lot of silos. You've got both silos of excellence, teams that are just crushing it and absolutely killing it. But also then you have silos of deficit and pain, right? Teams that are struggling sort of visibly and sometimes invisibly, right? Because it's, they're learning and doing these, these things for the first time and sometimes not having a whole lot of help on how to do it since so kind of a self-managed environment. I think the other thing is that we weren't really measuring the hidden costs, call it developer toil, if you like, right? Or even just developer productivity. We weren't really measuring that. And so as a result, some of these teams were, didn't really kind of have ability to zoom out and go, why is this so painful? And what are the root causes of, of addressing that? Because, hey, I got to get the next feature out the door, right? And so I think that ability to have like that 30,000 foot context around toil, productivity, availability, release frequency, the number of incidents you're having, like all of those burdens hadn't really been pulled into a single view to say, oh, that's why it hurts. <laughs> I get it now. All of those things I have, you know, those are all issues for me. And what can you as a platform team do to unblock me on those barriers? I'm curious for those of us, myself included, who haven't, who aren't as entrenched in the world of Kubernetes, is this a typical journey? I mean, is this, is this a common pattern where organizations kind of start out in a self-service model with Kubernetes and briefly work with Kubernetes and have also heard, seen other people comment on its complexity. So is this kind of the natural result of teams trying to self-manage Kubernetes in your experience? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I've run into this now, I would say at least three times in my career, pretty hard, right? Where we get to a certain level of maturity with it that it's no longer like the weight of the anchor weight of all of the complexity starts to weigh down on the teams, right? And you have to approach it in different ways. Other teams and other you know worlds have lived in, sometimes you do that with tooling. Sometimes you do that with process. I think it probably takes all three, taking a different cut of the technology. There's obviously a lot of iterations, improvements in this place. But yeah, I do think it's sort of a very common thing. I think also... One of the things, it's not just Kubernetes. I think in general, all of the hyperscalers out there are providing a lot of Lego box, a lot of Legos for the Lego box, right? But it's sort of like we're running into the same six challenges over and over around security and scalability and stability. It's like just a couple of concerns that I think it would be great at, at some point we get more of that functionality out of the box from the hyperscalers. 
But for now, you do have to kind of build that resiliency and that pattern of, say, governed and scalable cloud yourself. Thanks for sharing your perspectives on sort of the the Kubernetes journey, but also just the more universal journey of all organizations figuring out how to scale their infrastructure as they grow. One thing you had mentioned to me before was that you noticed that some teams weren't having problems self-managing. So I'm curious, in your view, why were some teams struggling and others not? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think two things come to mind. The teams that weren't struggling were larger. They tended to be larger teams, is what I've seen. Some of our biggest products, as you would sort of almost expect and infer, had the most amount of maturity. They had really senior resources. They had resources that had been in this environment for, you know, at some point, some of them have been over a decade of experience working with these products, right? At scale, you know, that means they've had quality assurance capabilities and, and resources embedded into their environments, right? And those are sort of DAT that we don't have those resources everywhere, right, in terms of full coverage. I think the other observation is that they tended to also have an engineer or two that were really specialized uh, on cloud infrastructure. That also tended to be the thing. And so that that actually, actually now that I think about it, that was a pretty big insight. The bigger teams had bigger, larger resources, and many of those teams also had an embedded resource that had experience, like deep experience with cloud infrastructure. I think the smaller teams, right, and some of the up-and-comers as well, right, are, are smaller. They're trying to figure it out. They're like, wait, and they were running into a lot of the same, the big boy challenges, but they hadn't had those experiences yet. And sometimes the tools were just so new, right? GitOps is great once you understand it, <laughs> but it can be really frustrating trying to understand how it works the first time, right? So that's those are the things I've observed. The other thing I would say, kind of loosely coupled, as we've started to mature our observability, both in terms of instrumentation as well as in terms of like process review of incidents and where what we had captured, what we didn't have captured, what alarms should have been configured that weren't, et cetera. The bigger teams tended to have a little bit more maturity around observability and they had already ready made dashboards, while other teams were saying like, oh, I need a dashboard. <laughs> so, oh, okay, I'll build one, like I'll build one today, but I didn't know I needed it. So I think that was probably the two things that stood out to me. And I think what I sort of inferred from that is that I believe that we need to really democratize that experience. Everyone should have access to like best-in-class tools across DAT, right? And it shouldn't just be relegated to how big you are or how large your budget is, right? Or you know, your future roadmap, right? Like that building performant, reliable systems at scale should be democratized. And that was basically, you know, like the big aha was like, oh, we've got this in certain places, but we don't have it everywhere. How do we take some of the goodness that some of these larger teams are doing and make sure that they have? And also, how do we enable, frankly, some of those larger teams that have learned some of these things through pain, right? They've got the t-shirt and they've got the bruise, how do we make sure that those things are not repeated as they continue to scale or they go and try and do bigger, larger things? Yeah, that makes sense. You don't want only the teams with the, the super senior people to be able to manage their infrastructure successfully. I'd love to ask you before going into kind of, you know, where this journey took you next. I'd love to ask you about that, that 24 page document, the sort of memo to the company that you put out. What was the mood on the ground as you sort of got started? I mean, I imagine some teams felt that change was coming, could have been feeling a little 
worried or even threatened by that. So I'm, how did you kind of, what did you get a sense of on the ground and what was maybe in your memo? How did you kind of try to manage that early on? Yeah, I kind of led with, I want to make sure we have the right resources for the right teams at the right time. And so I think early on that messaging was well received because there was a resource scarcity challenge. I don't think I mentioned it, but when I got here, there was like one cloud engineer for the whole company of 500 something developers, right? So like there's an obvious resource concern. But one of the early pieces of resistance, and I should say resistance feedback that I received, and I thought it was a good one, was like, hey, are we going to go do like multiple clouds? Because we're like, that is terrifying to me. And I remember saying early and often, no, right? Like, we're going to get great at one. AWS is our preferred player today. Let's go do that. And let's get awesome at that. And then after that, if we, you know, have use cases that support those additional clouds, we don't want to box or restrict ourselves from being able to get there. But we can do that as a next step, right? And I think that was one of the larger fears I heard, and I made sure that that was addressed. I think the other thing was just being in my communication, you know, I believe in just radical candor, right? Radical transparency. So I was also very candid about like how I thought our platform was working today. Like we graded ourselves, right? And shared those grades internally. Like, hey, we think that this capability is you know, kind of okay. This one's not great at all. Here's the thing that we believe we are absolutely missing today. Like the platform doesn't support it, can't support it. It's inflexible. And I think that was key to talking about some of the rigidity that existed in the current platform. As a good example, we have a lot of our company is really baked around data. We really are a large big data consumer and we use the analytics across that data to inform our customers. And so our data science teams are at the tip of the spear, right, of driving much of that growth, understanding and sharing of knowledge and information across not only internally, but also to our partner ecosystem. And they have so many evolving patterns around ML and you know, algorithm processing and even that we, I think as a platform team, we're struggling to keep up with with our current implementation. And so we use that, right, as also as a real example of here's how we believe this taking a different cut of this and providing more flavors and more options will satisfy concerns like these as well as others. So how are we going to capture the 90%? And how are we also going to capture the edge, right? And I, I appreciate that in that communication, we had all of those concerns thought through, not just, you know, again, you got to put platforms for the majority, not the minority, but you cannot forget about the minority either. And I think that was really key to have that. You could see if you're a developer at DAT, you could see yourself in each of those personas. And then it became, uh, what does this persona really need question? Versus I don't see myself in any of these personas. Well, I love those tips. I think that's really helpful for listeners who are either currently or in the future going to embark on a similar journey of change as you led. I love to fast forward a little bit then to, so you'd done these interviews, put out a lot of communication, and you developed a vision for where the company needed to go. And you mentioned that it included these four buckets. Can you share more about what this kind of vision was and how you conveyed it to the company? Absolutely. So the four personas that I saw from a platform offering and capability perspective that we have at DAT 
were one, what we already have today, which is a self-managed platform. It's got integrated guardrails, some best practices for infrastructure, security networking. It's got some you know, rational defaults. It has you know, some blueprints and modules off the shelf that teams can use to spin up new environments, right? The challenge is that we were using that persona for uh, 100% of our environment, for our application teams, whether they really fit into that persona or they didn't. And where I see us continuing to leverage that persona in the future is using it specifically for things like sandbox environments, or we do have um, acquisitions and mergers that are happening all the time. Those often you know, kind of run a little differently than everything else. And I think it's appropriate for a self-managed experience, a self-managed platform. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we also have teams that are just really autonomous. They have unique use cases. Data science is an interesting one of them, I would agree that they need to use the full gamut, the catalog with zero restrictions, right? And I think they would take advantage of a self-managed platform. As I mentioned kind of earlier, I think the question is, is that is that today that's 100%, I'd articulate that in our new cohort plan, that should be probably less than 10%, right, of our environment that's running through that. The second persona that we said so we really need to build is a managed platform. And that's where we're spending the next six to eight months kind of building this up which is a platform that's constantly being enhanced with best-in-class tools, with best-in-class products, services, and processes. It's designed and architected for resilience. It's got security defaults, SCPs, all of those best practices, well-architected architecture built into the framework so that you've got security, scalability, recoverability, all done as infrastructure as code across our cloud environments. Ideally, this persona could extend to our private cloud environments, our hybrid cloud environments. Eventually, it could extend to our multi-cloud environments. But we use that as a framework to say that this is going to be our golden path and our gold standard for platforms at DAT. This would also mean that this is something that has SLAs, that has it's you know got support systems, it's got evolving nascent cloud capability, and it's got the ability to plug and play the right modular infrastructure for the right app team. So that was a big piece of that. The third persona that we saw is that community contribution model, which is like I like to call it. And that's that we actually have a really great foundation of developers and engineers today that are always sharing information. But I really want to make that more of a golden path and curate content that is built sometimes for specific needs for a specific IT team that could be injected with best practices, security defaults, all that good stuff, and, and then give it back to the, the broader DET community. I think enabling a, a good developer experience through great documentation, great guidelines, great standards, reusable modular blueprints, infrastructure as code, all those things are critical. And I think that those things can be delivered across a self-managed platform as well as a managed platform. So I really see it as an incubator, right, for awesome things. And it removes our platform team and our DevOps teams from being kind of the, the bottlenecks or the gatekeepers for building innovative solutions. The fourth persona is brokered platforms. It's something that we do today, maybe by happenstance. I think of these as like external RAN platforms and environments that should be using our guidelines, our best practices, our guardrails, and even sometimes our engineering specs, right, coming from a platform team, but not being so prescriptive that those teams can't support themselves. I'll give you a good example. We've got 
emerging needs all the time, whether it's marketing sites or perhaps we're thinking about a secondary or a tertiary cloud that we want to experiment with for a specific data sense need, right? We want to be able to support those brokered platforms and those brokered experience, even if the platform team is not running those platforms, right? So how do we make sure that we're enabling that persona and that and that experience to exist while also thinking like at some point we may need to either incubate those learnings back into our managed platform and evolve the platform that way, or they exist at a, some point they may be transitioned over to the platform team to run themselves. So as we think about, you know, our WordPress sites, our Drupal sites, our marketing sites, our sales sites, all those, all those things, we want to continue to do those things and really allow the organization to move fast, but not move in a way that's not uh, resilient. Well, thanks for sharing all that. I love the the four buckets or personas and sounds like a really clear way to kind of convey the, the future state to the rest of the company. You've mentioned that this was a couple of weeks ago, but you mentioned to me there's, there's a lot of clamor right now for this vision. So I'd love to ask, you know, how have you sort of evangelized this vision to teams to build up all the hype around it? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, I think it uh, it started with the interviews, frankly, right? Like, you know, you start to get people excited about VR and they're possible. And a lot of what we did with the interviews, by the way, is we turned those interviews into user stories. So there was a set of user stories that then we got, got sized and then became part of a roadmap. And every month I put out uh, one, a list of priorities for the team and the group and the organization, what we achieved, what we planned to achieve that month and what we achieved from our previous month's commitments. And then in November, I did that. And I also added an update around our cloud strategy. So company-wide shared out exactly what we're talking through today. Here's what we learned. Here's where we came from. Here are the metrics that we believe are important to us and to our growth. Here's how we're going to make those metrics go go green, right? Or get better or improve by building out these capabilities around managed experiences. And it broke down. We provided over, I want to say over 30 architecture diagrams, detailed specs in terms of how we're going to achieve this. The items on our roadmap, our user stories are available publicly. We've got a feedback module that we have implemented into our roadmap so that Users can give us real-time feedback on things that they want to see added, moved, changed, upped in priority, et cetera. And that that was something that, again, went to everyone. I think the other piece of this is that we've continued to try to inject things that make sense into our current processes, even before the platform is online. So we have a, a new capability coming online around SRE. And we've been able to take some of the best practices in that space and inject them into our operational excellence weekly reviews that we're doing with all of the app teams. I think the last piece is we're doing a lot of, you can call them roadshows or you can call them education slash feedback sessions, right? With the application teams, we're sitting in, we're sitting in some of their sprints. We're sitting in some of their planning sessions where we're talking and as, as part of our annual operating process, we've injected our frameworks, our roadmap into what we're doing. And as a company, we are rolling out OKRs, which is awesome to have that being rolled out company-wide. And so our OKRs are directly tied to the top-level OKRs that then sort of cascade across the company. So we're injected into how we're just going to do business in 2023, which is really exciting. I think that's been the biggest piece of it. And then the more visual piece of it is that they can obviously see the team size growing. Again, I started with a single cloud engineer. 
And as of next week, we'll be up to about 26. That's awesome. Well, sounds like you're doing a lot. I mean, the sounds like you're doing a great job at communicating and being transparent in a really deliberate way, the constant interactions and embedding and roadshows, as you called them, and then support from leadership, like the OKRs and everything. So sounds like you're doing a lot. As you look ahead, you know, what are the ways in which you think once said managed platform comes into existence? What are the ways in which you think change? Because I mean, earlier you mentioned the goal is like 100% self-managed to 10% self-managed. That's a pretty big change for the company. So what are the ways in which you think this change is going to be hard? Yeah. In terms of hardship, I would say it's a couple of things, at least two that come to mind. One is, you know, we've started with things that I think ever much of the change that we're going to introduce early will be things that are people are climbing for and they want, right? It's going to be they're excited about it. They've asked for it for years. They're passionate promoters, right? It's, it's the NPS, right? Like they are promoters of some of the function that's coming for. And that's going to be great. We're starting with our kind of most mature, earliest adopters, right? Uh, we've got a, a pilot team. It's about three application teams that we're working exclusively with that we have been part of the interviews, part of the consultation, but frankly, helping us to educate us on, on what is wanted beyond what we see. And they'll be part of the first kind of tip of the spear going into it. And that'll, that'll be great, I think, in terms of starting to get real users kind of proliferating this information. After that, I think is where it gets hard, not just in terms of onboarding the rest of the, D, the AT ecosystem, but also in terms of, look, if you have a really reliable, scalable platform, it's going to reveal fragility within your current application architecture, right? And so at some point, my customers are going to have to change, <laughs> not just me. So I think the two junction points I expect to be complicated is anything that involves customer-oriented change. The first big one's going to be onboarding to the platform. That's always a somewhat disruptive affair, right? Going from one to another and decommissioning the old and running two in parallel at one time, right? That's always a migration process and that's a bit clunky. It's always, it's just a, it's always a learning experience and it's a learning experience for every team. That's why we're going to try and pilot it with some of our bigger, baddest, I say baddest in terms of good and ambassadors and what we're doing so we can kind of get it run, take those lessons real for it. But migrations are always, they're always, there's always nuance to them. The second piece is going to be, hey, your application is not architected in a way that can take advantage of the platform capabilities. One of the things that we want to have as an aggressive goal is multi-region DR right across the platform. But there are application realities right that have to be able to take advantage of that. And we don't have that in all places. Some of our, not some, a good set of our backend infrastructure is on-prem. And so there's some, some systemic bottlenecks that happen organically, right, as a result of that relationship. So breaking more of our, our applications into microservices, moving away from monoliths, you know, lifting capability up and into shared models that are living in cloud and shared across multiple applications, applications treating themselves as a service to each other building contracts straight between applications as a service. I think all of that's going to get exposed and it's going to stir up the pot internally alone around how that works. And I also think this is a good thing, but we will have a single measurement for what we think good looks like, right? For the company, every app will be held essentially to that yardstick and every app team will have to make changes in order to make those, achieve those targets, right? And that is not existed before. 
I think every app team's kind of made their own yardstick or had their own truth around what best in class look like. And instead we're saying, no, this is what best in class will be across the company. And so I think those are the the things we're going to run into probably about mid-cycle, right? I don't think it's the first three months. I think it's probably the next six to nine months that we'll run into those. And I think that's healthy conflict. I really believe in healthy conflict and healthy debate. We should all be aligned and hyper-focused on our customer's experience. And if we're doing that, we're going to debate each other. We're going to come to throws right, on certain things and approaches on how you should solve that problem. And ultimately, if we're, we're oriented around the customer and DAT is a very customer-centric company, then we'll solve it in the right way. But yeah, we're going to run headfirst into that. Yeah, this last part is really interesting to me because, again, thinking back to that that goal of 100% to 10%, I imagine there's going to be some teams that just want to stay on their self-managed infrastructure versus move on to the, the managed infrastructure whether that's valid or invalid reasoning behind that, is that, you know, how do you anticipate navigating that piece specifically? Yeah, the way to get to the root of that, because it will, that will happen. And I do anticipate that as well. The way I approach it is leading with data, right? And one of the things I don't think I talked a whole lot about yet was, you know, we did establish KPIs for our teams and for the company that didn't previously exist, right, around toil and productivity and availability and things like that. And what I am building as part of this platform is a single pane of glass at the executive view so that executives can look and see the release velocity, the security, vulnerability environment of each environment of each application team, the performance of each application team and how it runs across the platform. You have a single pane of glass around all of those things, the release velocity, right? Like all of those things will be in a single pane of class. And what we're building is a, a governance council, right? That includes executive sponsorship that will review, right? The performance across those metrics. So application teams don't need to explain it to me as to why they're not, you know, hitting one of those metrics or another. They'll have to explain it to the committee. And I think more than that, the interesting piece of that is I do believe that each app team is going to have to make a set of series of trade-offs, right? You know, all things equal, you don't always have unlimited resources, budget, and time, right? So you do have to make some trade-offs. And in some cases, what I expect to see and what I've seen in the past is that some teams will say, hey, yeah, we have more vulnerabilities or a higher list of vulnerabilities in our environment today because we're making this trade-off in terms of speed. We are in hyper-growth mode. We are very young. And so we are not over-focusing on that concern. Probably not security is not the right thing, by the way. I'd probably get in trouble for saying that. But we're going to de-emphasize that one rule book, that rule, that one metric in pursuit of aggressive speed. Or we may say, hey, you know, we are really expensive. We've got a little bit more infrastructure than we need. And we know it, right? You can see it in terms of other applications of similar size in the company. We've got a little more spend than we should. But we're doing that because we expect peak season, or we expect this kind of growth we've got, we're launching this campaign. And so we're going to run like this for the next 45 days. And then it's all going to you know, disappear into the ether, right? But you're making now a very intentional, a very knowledgeable trade-off, right? That's informed by business value, right? And you're having that conversation directly with the business and with the executive sponsorship across DAT, as well as with the enablement teams, right? 
cloud platform teams, cloud DevOps teams, SREs, around how to make those things real. And there might be opportunities for us to say, cool, that makes sense. That trade-off makes sense. However, like I can also help you like remove some of those concerns. Is there a way for me to automate that for you? Is there a way for me to inject some capability to the platform so you don't have to think about that? Is there something we can learn here, right? And I think, again, that's that level of candor, transparency, visibility, and awareness, right, of the trade-offs and concerns will ultimately drive us to better customer outcomes. But we don't have that today. So I think that's going to be one of the first things that we're doing. And I'm actually trying to rope. <laughs> one of my other teams is the uh, enterprise data team. So I'm trying to help rope some of my reporters into that building that dashboard out so that we can get that as soon as possible, right? Because having that baseline will show us, one, how we're improving, but two, allow us to have those conversations. This really ties into the next question I was going to ask, which is around rollout and adoption. And you already mentioned right now you're starting with these pilot teams, you know, heavily focused on the success of those teams. From what you were describing previously, it sounds like one of the ways you're hoping to drive adoption is by establishing those KPIs and saying, teams, you have to measure up, right? You have to hit these success criteria. And are you envisioning then that that will naturally lead a lot of teams to the managed platform? Because that's, you know, by switching from self-managed to managed, they'll essentially be able to hit most of those success criteria like out of the box. Is that one of the key approaches to the adoption? It is. Yeah, it is. And it is because I believe a couple of things are true. One, I love the change. I love the change process. Uh, it was like the, you know, that chasm of change that you kind of like, oh, I'm gonna, am I going to jump over this thing? You will if there's something for you on the other side of it. And so I appreciate the ability for some of the folks, you know, the people that go first to champion, right, to their peers. I think that speaks louder than I ever could champion to their peers the success they're seeing. Two, I think the the visibility at the enterprise level across all application teams and seeing some of the things, the concerns that the platform were do, even in the early days, even, you know, kind of around MVP and the the capability that that will give and the amount of time that and productivity that teams will get back. I think there's going to be uh, folks that organically just want to jump into that right as well. And I think the you know, since there will be visibility around those things, I also think there'll be some healthy pressure, right? I think it's healthy, right? Like, well, you've had X amount of incidents in the existing space and this other thing is available. So like, why not consider it? And there's probably going to be like, hey, when is the right? And that's the right conversation. I was like, it's not if, it's when do we onboard? And that's where I'd like to see some of those conversations happen. But yeah, I think it's mostly organic. And then I think the last piece, there always are delayed adopters, right? There always are. And we talked about it a little earlier in our conversation, right? I expect that you always have that. And that is where I think we'll use the the two vehicles around like, if this does, if it is meeting your needs, well, maybe then we don't need to move you, right? And you know what? The 90% is a target, right? But I think we're going to be constantly learning a lot as we go through this process. And, you know, it, it may be 80%. It may be 70%. If it is less than 90%, I think the question that I reflect then on is, cool, what do I need to change in the platform, right? What do we need to change in the platform to get that last mile, right? And that's that's totally fair, right? So I think the great thing about this, this change adoption process is that at every juncture, our application teams will have choice. 
And that was really important to me. I think it's really important to DAT. I've heard that it's really important from our application teams is that they have choice, right? Around the level of adoption, again, it's modular. So you can pick the things you want to use, the win of adoption, and as well as the if, right? And again, if all of those personas are true, right, then cool. You have an if choice, right? What am I and what do I aspire to be, right? And where am I today? I think it's about meeting people where they're at. Where am I today? And then, you know, meeting them where they're at and then helping them with that maturity journey. And it is a journey. So, do you know, it'd be great if, you know, we get 100% December 2nd, 2023. But even if we get, you know, frankly, if we get over 50, I call it a win because we will be learning and iterating on what we learn. And that alone will drive the right kind of behavior change. Well, I love the thoughtfulness around giving teams that the choice, right? The agency to to decide. And also love that you mentioned that, you know, by giving teams this choice, it will potentially force your team to reflect on how do we improve the platform to, you know, win over more teams. And that was I had a similar conversation recently with a a leader at Wayfair who said the same thing about how he thought about adoption of developer platforms. So Uh, Thanks for those thoughts. You know, we've talked a lot about how you've managed stakeholders in terms of developers and how you've interfaced with those teams. I'd love to ask you about who the other stakeholders are in this and then ask you about how you're managing those relationships. I imagine InfoSec, finance, compliance, legal, maybe like who's involved in this outside of the application engineering teams? All of those actors are definitely involved legal compliance, finance, as part of the uh, design sprint process, when we were designing all these things, we brought a number of those folks in. We had folks from our security teams. We are driving towards the DevSecOps model. And that was key to us to make sure they're not only included, but at the tip of the sphere of that conversation. Our finance teams have been with us the whole way, thinking about, you know, one of the things they've, they've thought a lot about is like, one, how do we, how do we really use this platform capability to drive growth in the business? And what do you really need to make that true? And when it materializes, what does governance really start to look like? I think the other teams that have sort of been in our periphery a little bit have been the sales and marketing teams because they drive a lot of, they have a really deep connection and relationship with our customers. And a lot of the things that end up on our roadmap kind of come in through a lot of those lens. And so understanding where capability needed to exist and what our, you know, kind of top three priorities were going to be for 2023 as a, as a company fed into our roadmap in terms of where we wanted to get that done. Actually, material change was originally when we mapped this out, we're like, oh, it's June <laughs> when we're going <laughs> to, July when we're going to get this. And we're like, you know, based on what we're trying to deliver and what the company's trying to achieve, it's too late. So it, we went, took another cut at it and really fine-tuned what MVP was and landed on March, April. So yeah, that was a that was another big interaction. I think the last big one is just uh, ELT, our executive leadership team. They've been our biggest supporters, our biggest promoters. Our CEO, Claude, is just an incredible guy. And he uh, literally like reviews our plans and talks through what we're trying to learn. And and he, you know, he stepped in some of the sessions and design sessions, right? So it's been great to have that level of collaboration with the C-suite. Our CTO has been at the front of the forefront of this as well, as he's thinking about a lot of the evolution of the SDLC process. How does that marry with what we're doing on the platform side, right? 
so those are the, I think, the kind of the various personas that we've interacted with uh, building this. It's just been really fun to capture that on the finance team specifically. I remember one of the accountants was like, so are we going to have like financial governance? And we're like, yes, it's awesome. <laughs> and then we went a little, you know, layered out into like, what does that look like to you? And then we talked about what's capable, when, how fast we can get those things. And I love how those conversations have influenced our timelines and getting visibility into that at the right levels. Well, I love all the the sort of anecdotes you've shared and the stakeholders you've listed. I'd love to double click a little more on the finance piece. For people listening who are going through a similar journey, I'd love to really, you know, pick apart a few maybe concrete, you know, headwinds they may face or or strategies that you've been able to use to kind of, you know, really partner closely with finance. You mentioned that governance piece sounds like that was a big win for finance. What have been some other concerns, issues, even just concerns around overall costs that have come up that you've been able to navigate through? Yeah. You know, finance sits at a very incredible intersection of every business, right? And I always kind of consider them as the canary in the coal mine, right? Because they they understand the business at a level that is just incredible. I I kind of feel like we all need to be closer to finance than, you know, go take those courses in college. It's worth it because they just have an incredible viewpoint on material impact and business value, right? And so a lot of the conversations early on, actually, as we were forming up the strategy, I was sharing literally like the on a day-to-day basis updates around the strategy with my finance partner. And I was having conversations with our CFO around his observations in terms of things that we've tried in the past and where it caught us, the investments we've made in the past and where it didn't really materialize or where there was moon shoots that we could learn from that he appreciated. Our CFO is an interesting guy, Tony, because he also comes from a technology background. And so he knows this stuff and we can kind of talk shop on a different level that that I really appreciate. And I think really my biggest advice would be they are your friends, right? Like they are ultimately focused on business growth and they're going to ask hard questions around that. Then they're great questions, but they're hard questions around like, what is the ROI of this? What is the value of this? And really helping you to crystallize and strip away any of the noise, any of the distraction to just get down to like brass tacks. What is this going to enable change or deliver to our customers. And if it's not going to do that, do we really need it? And I appreciate that lens. We've done that again, like I said, it was a daily conversation as we've moved to another, you know, rev of a deck, or if we got another level of understanding, or we saw a different how that we might impact our, our hiring forecasts or our needs, right, going into the year. And we did try to look at this in terms of three things. What is the current kind of, if you will, like spend associated with 2022? What is the predicted spend associated with 2023? And what does that get us from an ROI perspective? And what is this team and what is this capability and spend look like in 2024? We actually went three years out to really think through that. You know, and we started that conversation in August. And so what's great is we all understand the milestones. We all understand the drivers. We all understand the strategy. And as we've encountered, you know, challenges or we've had to pivot 
on certain, as we've learned things, we've had to pivot on certain approaches. Finance has been there along the way. Like, oh, but are we still going to get that? Yes. Cool. Okay. Well, how does that change when we're going to get it? Well, actually, I think it makes it faster. Okay, cool. Like, awesome. And we're having that as a live dialogue so that there aren't any surprises. I think of them as the best accountability partner you could ever have. And I'm big on accountability. I hold myself, I want to hold myself accountable to delivery for my customers. It's the only way to be empathetic is to put your put something on the line. <laughs> and so I think they've been a fantastic partner in making sure that it's thoughtful, it's valuable, there's accountability baked into it, and that you're you have the vehicles available to you that you might not have thought of. The last piece on this that I think finance was incredibly helpful was in thinking through actually how to financially achieve this stuff. We had levers to pool that I would not have been aware of if they were not part of this conversation from the beginning. And that that really has been awesome because when you go into a conversation with your CEO or with the C-suite and you know finance is going, they're saying it for you <laughs> and with you, it's so much of an easier conversation because building these things you know, are not inexpensive. There is material cost to it, and there's long-term expense that's associated with it as you staff up a team, right, and go from one person to 26, right? But because we've been able to do it together and we've been able to stay focused on the metrics that matter to the business, it's been a really enjoyable process. And I think, you know, I'm frankly sort of astounded that we've been able to do all of this in four months. And I think it's only because we work with partners like finance to make this real. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's great advice for people to think about and, you know, really take seriously partnering with finance. I think a lot of people often see them as a gatekeeper rather than a potential strategic partner in, like you said, even winning over the executive leadership team. So love that advice. And in this conversation has been full of insights, really excited to, to follow the rest of your journey as you go on. But uh, lots of great tips and insights shared here today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's fun to talk about this stuff. 